The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Good morning, good morning. I am so excited today to talk to a woman I've known for many years. She's a forensic scientist and an expert witness. Uh, But before we get started, you know I have to talk about two upcoming events. Northern California people and those listening, um, those interested in the process of interviewing witnesses, I'll be speaking at the North Bay meeting of the California Association of Licensed Investigators, the nuts and bolts of interviewing tomorrow night in Santa Rosa. If interested, contact Maya Myra at M-I-R-A dot P-I at A-O-L dot com. And, of course, do not forget the week-long training for criminal defense specialists, January 23rd to 27th, San Jose, California. Information can be found at, at uh, www dot C-A-L-I, Cali hyphen P-I, for private investigator, of course, dot org. Students attending this training academy will have hands-on case workup and investigation as close to the real thing as possible, January 23rd to the 27th at the Hayes Mansion in San Jose, California. Now, let me introduce you to my guest, Celia Hartnett. Work- Hi, Celia. Good morning, Francie. Thanks so much for being on the show, Celia. This is going to be so much fun. Um, uh, it's exciting. Thanks for asking me. <laughs> So, working with experts is challenging, frustrating, and sometimes really puzzling. But working with a great expert is often insightful as well as, as you know, rewarding and whether or not it helps your case. So, Celia is a court-qualified expert in many areas of forensic science, crime scene reconstruction, firearms, tool marks, impression evidence, gunshot residue, serology, Trace evidence, blood alcohol analysis, I can't say it, blood alcohol analysis and interpretation, and also controlled substances. She's an expert where an investigator and attorney walks away with an education concerning their particular case. So I'm so excited about having you on the show today, Celia. Thanks. So you, you, you took an unusual path becoming a forensic expert. Tell us a little bit about that because I think it's very interesting, particularly for women out there that want to get into fields that are uh, typically uh, staffed mostly by men. How did you do that, Um, Saya? Well, that's that's true. My background is a little bit different. 
most of the people that are in the forensic science field came into it via um, some sort of science, either chemistry or biochemistry, and then looked for an application for the skills that they'd acquired. But the way that I got started is, is actually quite different. Um, when I first came to America from Australia, I was taking an American government class, and each student was assigned to a particular project. Some of them went to work for political campaigns and so on, and I was sent to the local police department. And um, through that sort of internship, I developed an interest in law enforcement. But in those days, there were very, very few women actually employed in law enforcement. You ran yeah. into an occasional matron that worked in juvenile hall. Um, and and you know, they were but, called matrons too, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's an outdated title, isn't it? Uh, um, anyway, but um, I... I was interested in law enforcement, but just looking at my personality and my own personal skill set, I just couldn't see myself going into traditional police work like as a patrol officer. Mm-hmm. Um, I just couldn't see myself crawling around in the bushes at three o'clock in the morning looking for a six foot prowler. Uh-huh. So I I looked for something that I was good at and that I really felt that I could um, contribute something useful to the field. And because I was very good at science, that was an, the area that I chose. So it is a little bit unique to come into um, forensic science from that avenue. So how did that happen? I mean, so you're sent to work at a police department. In, in what role at that point? Um, at that point, I was assisting the chief of police to do some um, studies. He was a, a, a great visionary in terms of law enforcement. One of the problems the police were having in those days was a um, uh, great lot of disrespect from the public. And what he did was he uh, disposed with the traditional police uniforms, mm-hmm. and he outfitted all of his police officers with business suits. They wore blazers with a patch on the pocket and uh, slacks. Hmm. And what I was helping him do was compile statistics regarding assaults on police officers and general public interaction with the police officers. And interestingly, what that change did um, in, in those days, this was in the 1970s, was that it changed the, not only the public's attitude towards the police officers in terms of dealing with, them more, with uh, more respect but it also changed the type of police officer that was applying for positions with that particular police department. So it was a very interesting experiment. Anyway, so my role was basically to help him go through all of the police reports and um, seek out the details that he needed for his studies. During that time, I'm... I'm sorry, sorry? where was this located? Um, It was at the Menlo Park Police Department in California. Uh Uh-huh. Well, and something this made... <laughs> um, and we're back to event, the same So problem. I met a lot of the officers there. They started a cadet program for boys at that point in time. Um, they allowed me to be in the program, even though I was a girl, but I had to only go by my first initial. I couldn't use my full first name on anything so that people wouldn't know that I was a girl. Oh, my goodness. So times have changed. We've come a long way since then, haven't we? We have. 
Well, a little bit anyway. <laughs> so, so, <laughs> anyway, so okay, from so there, you... from there, I went down to UC San Diego. My first two years, I took um, general natural science classes, chemistry, physics, biology, um, and I then transferred up to the University of California in Berkeley for my final two years. In those days, they had a specialized program. It was part of their school of criminology. And uh, my degree was actually in criminalistics. Interesting. So, okay, so you, you graduate from Cal with, uh, with a degree in criminalistics, and then where do you go from there? Um, well, during my um, years at, at UC Berkeley, I interned with the San Mateo County Sheriff's Office in their crime lab there. And um, just prior to graduating, they had an opening, and I was lucky enough to be hired on the condition that I, you know, eventually did graduate. So I started work there full-time as a criminal in 1974. Mm. So now, you know, I've been in the field for a very long time. <laughs> That's great. And so when you started out um, at that location, what were you doing? Uh, well, in those, in those days, our specialty was regarded to be the application of science to matters involving law enforcement and the law, and not so much a specialty in a particular analytical area. So we were expected to do a little bit of everything. We did serology, which was the forerunner to uh, DNA these days, mm -hmm. uh, firearms, tool marks, trace evidence, which covers hairs, fibers, paint, glass, and so on. Um, mm -hmm. And we also had to do a lot of drug analysis and so on. Um, and we responded to all major crime scenes. Okay. So part, part of our job there, obviously, is to recognize what could be useful evidence to um, preserve it and collect it appropriately, to bring it back to the lab, analyze it, interpret our results, and then go to court and explain our findings if necessary. So it seems to me like you, what initially you were doing was what we now call an evidence tech or a crime tech. Where they go, um, you go out. No, 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 the, no. The crime, the crime technicians did a lot of the minor cases in terms of fingerprinting and photography and so on at the crime scenes, and also okay. collection of evidence there. The criminalists would respond to the major crime scenes, and I think that the real value of that was in uh, being able to uh, recognize some of the more subtle pieces of evidence. And to be able to interpret it later on within the context of the case. So I think it's important for, for criminalists to understand the context of the case. You can't really interpret something accurately if you don't know the context. And what do you mean by that, Celia? What do you mean by context? Um, well, for example, if you um, have a homicide and the suspect and victim were in the same vehicle, it's important to know whether or not this pair commuted every day together to work or whether this was an unknown suspect and this would be the singular time that he was in this particular vehicle. Because okay. you, can't really, you can't really ascribe any value to what you're finding unless you know that sort of background information. Mm, okay. 
And and actually, that's interesting because many times uh, when you're gathering evidence, you don't have that information because it, is, it isn't passed on to you. Isn't that true? Um, that's true. You you have to read police reports if you're not present at the scene. Um, you need to read the background police reports so that you can understand that background. And this helps you to ask the right questions because as uh, one of my peers, Keith Inman, whom I quote on a regular basis, <laughs> often says... And he's the one... He's what, I might let me just say he's going to be at our training in uh, in January twenty third to the twenty seventh. He's going to be our our field crime scene te- uh, expert. So okay. this is going to be People fun. People will so have a lot to gain by attending that because Keith is really, um, I think, one of the great thinkers in our field. Oh, he's um, anyway, so he, he's been known to say that unless you ask the right question, you cannot get the right answer. Mm-hmm. If you ask the wrong question, you will get the wrong answer. Correct. Good point. That's, that's very good. That applies to a lot of areas. Well, it certainly does. And there's lots of examples of that that we run into on a regular basis. Um, And just a small one that I can tell you about was a case I worked where there was a spot of blood on the gun and uh, this went to DNA. The labs are so specialized now and so Mm -hmm. it's very difficult for somebody to get a good overview of the case. But this went to DNA, they swabbed that blood spot off, they typed it and they got a DNA type on it. And of course the DNA, DNA type went back to the person who was bleeding thus proving that one bleeds DNA of the same type that is contained within one's body. But unfortunately, <laughs> unfortunately, I know it's funny, but unfortunately, that was not the question in the case. It was much more important for us to know in this particular case how the blood got onto that gun, how it was placed on that gun. And because it had been swabbed off and consumed, we were unable to, to get that information. It was permanently lost. Oh my goodness. So so there's just a small example of asking the wrong question and uh-huh. uh, arriving <laughs> at an answer that really doesn't add any value to the case at all. Right, right. So uh so do you remember your first case, Celia, your first big case? How did that work? I uh, I do, Francie, and it was a very sad one. It was um the case where these two young boys were left at home. Um, alone by the mother, she went out to run an errand. And while she was gone, these two little boys were playing with a shotgun that the Mm. mother had stored in the bedroom. Mm. And uh, let's see, one of them was 11 years old, the other was 6 years old. And around the time when the mother was due to come home, they thought they better put the shotgun away and get some of the chores done that she'd instructed them to do before she came back home. The older one was taking the garbage out, and the little one went to put the shotgun away. And this old shotgun did not have a trigger guard on it. What Mm. happened, I believe, was that the trigger caught on a tablecloth on the table and went off. And it fired in the direction of where the 11-year-old was, hitting him. He managed to stagger some distance from the back door and then dropped dead. And, of course, the six-year-old was absolutely terrified, um, blamed it 
on a teenage boy that lived next door. Oh, and, my goodness. Yeah. So, you know, um, I think it was, it was very fortunate that this teenage boy had had detention that day and had not been able to come home from school long time. Hmm. So, um, but anyway, so the subsequent investigation showed the direction of the shot coming from exactly where the tablecloth was on the table and you could see that it had been sort of partially pulled off of the table. It was a very, very sad case. Oh, very tragic. My goodness. Um, and and that that wasn't obvious to anybody when you when you processed the crime scene. Um, no, it wasn't obvious at all. And of course, mm-hmm. everybody was thinking that at this point in time, because no one had yet had the opportunity to follow up, they were thinking that it was a homicide and that it had you know happened as the six year old was explaining that this boy mm-hmm. next door had come over and done this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, poor kid. He's probably never recovered from that. You know, my goodness. And that's the yeah. uh, the human side of doing forensic evidence. Uh, well, I think that, you know, when I thought about some of the things you might ask me on the show, and I thought about things that I've liked most about the job and things that I've liked least about the job. And I think, you know, being a first-hand witness to so much tragedy over the last 43 or 44 years that I've been in the field mm-hmm. is probably one of the, the least desirable things about this job. It's a, it's a very hard thing to witness first-hand man's inhumanity to man. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yes, and, and you're, you're confronted with it every day. I mean, we, the rest of us, the rest of us out here in the world have no idea that you, you know, what you're confronted with when you're either the lead officer or the the people that are going to process the crime scene and what that means and how that assaults your whole being, really. I we have no idea. That's a, it's a very good point because, I, you know, in the crime lab where you tend to serve multiple agencies or an entire region, your exposure is so much greater than even the most experienced police detective in mm-hmm. any one single agency. And it's cumulative. You know, police officers will rotate into the detective bureau for a number of years, and then they rotate out again. But the people in the crime lab tend to be career people, and mm-hmm. you spend many, many, many years being exposed to this. And I yeah. think it, it eventually has to take a toll on people. I would on think bright, so. On the bright side, though, Francie, you know, not to be all negative about it. I mean, first of all, if you're doing your job right, then you're contributing something to the justice system in terms of valuable information. And so from that point of view, it's a, it's a positive thing. Yeah. Oh, for sure. For sure. Well, we're going to take a quick break. Celia, we'll be back in a few with forensic expert Celia Hardnett. We'll be back. I'll be on hold. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. 
Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Cecilia Hartnett wears many hats in the forensic world. For a period of time, she was a director of a major forensic lab in Northern California. It's called Forensic Analytical. Now she's a consultant. And I just want to ask you, Cecilia, what happens? What's the process? Um, I know I often work with with a laboratory as the investigator on a case. Uh, I'm working for an attorney, but sometimes the attorneys are going directly. Uh, So when a case comes to you, Say it's a, um, there's a question about whether such and such a firearm fired the bullet that killed the victim in a case. Tell me what your process is and how does that work when you're working directly with the, uh, the legal team? Well, typically, I'll get a phone call from an attorney um, and what they'll do is fill me in a little bit about the background on the case. And just in the conversation with them, the introductory conversation with them, I will try to get a sense of the case and try to elicit what the particular questions are that need to be addressed. So we go back to that idea that if we're asking the right questions, we're far more likely to come up with the right answer. And the questions that we are addressing are typically who... We can do that by fingerprints. We can do that by DNA. It's what what happened here. Mm-hmm. Um, can we sequence anything? So when when did this occur? Um, sometimes it's where because if we can answer the question of where this happened, we can go back to the idea of who's responsible for it. So mm-hmm. just trying trying to work through the questions. You know, how this happened, what was the weapon that was used, what are the real issues in this case? Um, Occasionally it is, whether or not this is the gun that fired a particular bullet, 
And that's a fairly straightforward question. Um, the answer is not always as straightforward because the bullet can be damaged and it can be really difficult to work with. But um, the question itself is straightforward. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sometimes what we arrive at is that what is going to contribute more value to the case is where did the shot originate from? Um, in other words, looking more at doing a crime scene reconstruction as opposed to a firearms um, you know, comparison. Uh, and, and how do you go about reconstructing a crime scene? Um, the main things, particularly addressing a firearms case, for example, are going to be distance, a distance determination, and a trajectory. So is mm-hmm. there something about the, the trajectory that's going to tell us either who fired the shot or um, where the shot came from, or whether or not the shot could be self-inflicted, whether or not the shot could be an accidental discharge, mm-hmm. or whether or not... Um, it could be uh, ruled out as a suicide and, and uh, you know, definitely declared a homicide. Mm-hmm. So we're looking at distance, we're looking at angle, we're looking at height, we're looking at direction. And a lot of times what we're also looking at there is blood spatter. Right. Because that will it's- help us often to position the, the, the victim or the target and the shooter. Talk about the blood spatter a little bit, Celia, and, ha- and how that works and how you can, how you can determine it, uh, the position. Well, let me give you an example. If we're trying to decide whether a particular gunshot is self-inflicted or has been fired by somebody else committing a homicide, the way in which the gun is held can make a big difference. And mm-hmm. if you look at the blood spatter that appears on the gun or on the hand of the decedent or on the hands of the shooter or potential shooter or a suspected shooter who actually may just be somebody who rendered first aid, mm-hmm. that blood spatter can have a completely different appearance. We look not and- just for where the blood has landed but how it's landed there. And we also look for areas of what we call shadowing, where an object blocks the blood from landing on a particular surface. So try to imagine that you're holding a gun in the routine fashion. And Mm -hmm. as you can picture it, you'll have the full full fingers of your hand wrapped around the front of the handle of the gun. And that's going to protect the front handle of the gun from any blood spatter landing on it. Mm-hmm. Now, if you're the one that's shooting yourself and you're holding the gun in a different fashion and pulling the trigger perhaps with a thumb, the front of the handle can be exposed and it can have blood spatter landing there uh, instead mm-hmm. of on the fingers. So very, very important at a Suspected suicide, if you're trying to, de- a suspicious death and you're trying to determine whether it's a suicide or homicide, to look at blood spatter patterns. Absolutely mm-hmm. critical. And is, you know, sometimes when there's a, a, a staged suicide, for example, a staged crime scene to make it look like a suicide, is it pretty uh, easy to identify that it's staged? 
or or is that a difficult process? I think it can it can be it, it can be both easy or difficult, um, okay. and it really depends on being able to take a critical look at the evidence. Oh, okay. So, a lot of times when you're working with an attorney, obviously you're doing what I call Monday morning quarterbacking, and there are both <laughs> advantages and disadvantages to being in that situation. Uh, the first one is that you're very dependent on the work that has been done by the initial responders to the crime scene. If they've taken the right photographs and the right measurements and made the right observations, you're going to be in good shape. If they haven't, you can really be up the creek without a paddle, and it makes your job extremely difficult. Um, You don't always have the opportunity to go back and redo any part of a particular case. So, so that's very important. The advantage which is why good, to being sorry, go ahead. Say, which, which is why good photographs are critical. Absolutely, actually. photographs and yeah. measurements. Yeah. Um, the the advantage to being the Monday morning quarterback is that by the time you get involved, the the questions have sifted themselves out fairly well, mm-hmm. and you are able to focus in and address a specific topic. And you no longer have the distractions that you have when you're trying to process a crime scene. And you also have uh, a lot of the unknowns filled in by then. You have witness statements and so on that are not necessarily available to you when you're the first responder at a crime scene. So there are significant advantages both ways. But anyway, to get back to your original question about working with the with an attorney. So the first thing is I just engage in a conversation, uh, make sure that it's an area that's within my area of expertise so that I refer them to an appropriate expert if it is not. Mm-hmm. Um, get a sense of what the questions are that I need to address. And then I will provide them with a, a list of the materials that I think I'm going to need. And among those are going to be any... Uh, photographs of the crime scene, crime scene diagrams, um, witness statements that may uh, help us get oriented at the crime scene, and um, yeah, evidence lists, anything that, that was uh, collected at the crime scene. And I also ask for any lab reports, and mm-hmm. then, and I'm, I know you guys have probably heard this before, any supporting documentation from the lab. And that's going to include what we call bench notes. There mm-hmm. can be handwritten notes. They can be computer uh, documents, photographs, uh, computer printouts, any sort of uh, data that the crime lab has developed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, I remember, Celia, um, in working with when you were at Forensic Analytical, um, most labs and most consultants work for both the prosecution and the defense, correct? Um, I would have to say no. I think that, oh, no? that um, most government agencies have their own crime labs. And when you think about it, that's a very substantial advantage. The big cities like San Francisco and Oakland and San Diego will have their own crime labs just mm-hmm. serving their city. Um, The populated counties like San Mateo County, Santa Clara County, Alameda County are going to have county crime labs. 
In addition to that, you've got the California State Department of Justice. They will serve an entire region, like the, the whole Santa Barbara region or Sacramento, Greater Sacramento region. And then in addition to that, you've got the ATF lab. Uh, they have an office in uh, Walnut Creek. You've got the DEA, and you have the FBI lab. Uh, majority of their work is, is done in Washington. But all of those resources are available to government agencies. Um, as far as the defense is concerned... You've got a private consultant, and that's about it. So we're definitely not talking about a level playing field here. Correct. Well, now, okay, Um, I have a question then about that, because I know at Forensic Analytical, Oakland Oakland, uh, prosecutors, Alameda County prosecutors, send uh, sometimes send their cases to Forensic Analytical. Why would they do that if they have their own crime lab? um, Well... Occasionally, it's because the crime lab doesn't offer a particular type of service, like gunshot Mm. residue, for example. That's a fairly specialized area. Or it could be that their lab is significantly backlogged and just is unable to provide the level of service that a government agency is seeking. And you have to to realize that um, those are generally very forward-thinking administrators in the government because they're looking for a level of service that they are not obtaining from their own their own agencies. Um, for example, I believe DOJ had to institute uh, some restrictions on the number of samples that they could receive from any particular case with regard to doing DNA analysis because they were simply overwhelmed. And so Mm -hmm. they were asking the police departments to choose a couple of the most significant items of evidence and submit only those for analysis. And when you think about that, you know, that can be absolutely uh, fatal to being able to solve a case because you don't always know right up front until the analysis is done what is going to be your most valuable piece of information in terms of the um, value that it can add to your investigation. For sure. Now, you mentioned gunshot residue, Celia. Uh, There's been so much controversy about gunshot residue. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I'm not really sure why there's so much controversy over that as opposed to any other type of physical evidence. Um, It's extremely valuable, and I think the main difficulty that analysts have with it is being able to interpret the evidence appropriately. I see. And I I think that that's probably why a lot of agencies have steered away from it. I understand Um, that DOJ doesn't do, uh, California Department of Justice no longer analyzes gunshot residue. Is that still true? Um, I think it. I think it may still be true. I know for a period of time they did not. The main reason that they dispensed with it when they did was because of the high volume and the expense of running it, because I it see. is an expensive type of analysis and it's quite slow. I see. Huh. I didn't realize that. That's interesting. Why is it slow? Um, because you're working on a submicroscopic level. So basically, for For people who don't know, the way that it works is um, you collect a a sample 
from the service that you're interested in testing. That somebody's hands, if you think they may have fired a gun, or it could be a car window, if you think a gun was fired out of a particular car window. It could be clothing, because if you have an elapsed period of time between apprehending the suspect, you may want to um, test the clothing as opposed to the hands that could have Mm -hmm. been washed and and the residue lost. Mm -hmm. So you're working with different surfaces, and the way to collect it is you take a little aluminum stub. It's about maybe um, half an inch in diameter, covered with a sticky substance. You dab the area that you're interested in testing, and then that's sealed up in a little vial to protect it, and that whole thing is submitted to the lab for analysis. That little aluminum stub is actually the stage out of a microscope, a scanning electron microscope. So that whole thing is inserted into the instrument, and then the instrument is programmed to scan back and forth in a raster across the surface of that stub. And you might think that half an inch isn't very big, but when it's magnified 500 times at least, <laughs> it, <becomes pretty> big. <laughs> it can take you a really long time to cover 100% of the surface of that disk. So it's very slow. Um, fortunately, and- there are some very good automated programs out there, and what they do is they'll, it'll scan back and forth. It'll flag any particles that it thinks might possibly be gunshot residue so that an analyst can come back in, relocate those particles of interest, and confirm whether or not they are actually gunshot residue. So you can be in the area where a, gun, where a firearm was fired and get gunshot residue on you, so is there a, a is there a quantity that's significant or well, or yeah it, you I'm know sorry. my question is there a what is there a what <laughs> is there is there a quantity of gunshot residue that would be significant because you could be in the area where the gun was fired and get gunshot residue on you even if you didn't handle the gun um you can but I think that it's a mistake to assume that that has happened before you've done the testing. And that's mm. probably where the, the, the biggest failure comes in, is that the people assume an outcome before they've even done the testing. And I think that that is a terrible mistake. If you're in an area, you can leave fingerprints as well. But right. have you necessarily left them? You don't know that unless you've dusted and attempted to lift the fingerprints. So I think it's important to start with the question and let the answer develop rather mm-hmm. than starting with the answer and saying, oh, well, you know, just because you're in an area where a gun was fired, you could have gunshot residue on you. That is mm-hmm. a possibility. But in reality, what we find is that when we really start looking, there are clues for us. And I've had numerous cases where we've had a drive-by shooting There's been four occupants in a vehicle, three of them come up negative, and one of them comes up positive. Hmm. And I think that that's valuable information added. Is it proof beyond a reasonable doubt? Well, we can argue that, but that's really up to the jury to decide that. Mm -hmm. But what is the, the work of the forensic scientist is to put that information out there. Right, right. Right, you're not you're not necessarily coming to a conclusion. You're putting it out there for somebody else to come to a conclusion. 
Well, it's not so much the conclusion as it is that somebody else has to assign weight to the information that you're giving them. Mm-hmm. So we can tell them this is how it was collected, this is how it was analyzed, this is what we're looking for, and this is what we found. And okay. then once you're in court, people can give you a hypothetical and say, could this have happened, could that have happened? And as an expert, you give your best answer to those questions. But really, the jury is the one that decides in the long run, what does all of this mean? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do I believe that this really rare event happened or is it more likely that it happened a different way? They're okay. the ones that are assigning that type of weight to something. Okay. So we need to take a really quick break again. Um, stay tuned, folks. That's Celia Hartnett. We'll be right back. Okay. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call one 800 350 C-A-L-I. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on PIs Declassified. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to PIs Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Today's program features Celia Hartnett. We were just talking about offline here about uh, claims that either prosecutors or defense attorneys come to a, a, a consultant with. And I know you've got a couple of stories. Cecilia. Let's take uh, prosecutors, for example. What what has a prosecutor come to you with that uh, uh, just doesn't work? Well, you know, we the, the first thing to remember is that the prosecutor is coming with information that he's obtained from witnesses, um, and not all witnesses are necessarily unbiased. So right. you can't really fault people sometimes for asking a particular um, avenue to be investigated. So that's the, that's the first thing. But we do sometimes get a chuckle out of some of the things that, that uh, we come up against. Um, one of them was a shotgun. The question was uh, 
the defendant was claiming that it was a, an accidental discharge. And mm-hmm. the prosecutor came with a report from the crime lab saying that the gun was, was operable and uh, no further remarks on that. So they said, well, there's nothing to indicate that this is an accidental discharge. So we asked to look at the shotgun itself. And when it came to us, we, we noticed that the safety switch on the top of the shotgun was missing. And what this allowed the safety on the shotgun to do is to operate with gravity so that when the barrel of the shotgun was pointed downwards, the safety was free to move with gravity and it would actually put the safety in, engaged. But uh-huh. when the barrel of the shotgun was brought up, the safety took itself off just by virtue virtue of gravity. And uh, the thing I think that was so mind-boggling to us was that uh, the crime lab had simply been asked, is the the gun operable or not? And, of course, their report addressed that particular question, that the gun was operable, it would fire if somebody pulled the trigger, but totally missed the actual question, which had a great deal more to do with whether or not this gun lends itself to an accidental discharge. And I think most of us would believe that any gun that can take itself off of safety simply by virtue of its orientation is definitely right. prone to an accidental discharge. Well, and that's but, kind of you know, interesting. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. That's okay. I was just, I was moving on to the next question. So if you have oh, something want, that you wanted to ask yeah. about that, go ahead. Yeah, I wanted to, so it, it sounds like, now maybe I'm completely off base here, but it sounds like that, that you discovered that by accident almost. Um, I would say not accident. We are very no. thorough in our jobs. Okay. Um, I least, did not say least, that. I would not some of us are. <laughs> I would never some, bring some up that was next. We try very hard. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, I was just trying to process that in my mind of how, how you would discover that that existed. Um, was, was there any particular process that you discovered that the safety worked that way? Uh, no, it was pretty obvious when, as soon as the gun came to us. Oh, okay. So, okay. All um, right. But we, we've had other similar ones. We had one where um, an officer claimed he was uh, fired upon by a suspect with an AK-47. And um, the police department had been unable to recover the cartridge case. But they said, well, you know, it's a heavily trafficked street and... Um, there are drains and so on, you know, that the cartridge case could have been lost. The evidence that they produced was a photograph of a ding in a vehicle behind where the officer was standing. And the defendant was saying, well, you know, I had a gun, shouldn't have had a gun. I would plead to possession of the gun, but I'm definitely not guilty of attempted murder of a police officer. I never pointed it at anybody or fired it. And one of the things that seemed a little odd to us was the fact that this AK-47 bullet could simply ding off of a vehicle and not make mm-hmm. a greater impact. Mm-hmm. So um, we asked to take a look at a piece of the projectile that had been recovered. The crime lab had written a report saying that this particular um, projectile was unidentifiable in terms of being able to match it back to a weapon, Mm -hmm. um, that it was too badly damaged, that it was simply a fragment. And uh, 
purely by virtue of the suspicion regarding the, the ding on the vehicle, we asked to examine this, this bullet fragment, and it came to the lab. We opened it and discovered that it was a little piece of rubber, like, you know, a piece of a gasket around a window of a vehicle or something uh-huh. like that. It was, it was not a projectile at all. And the criminalist had failed, apparently, to even take it out of the evidence envelope um, <laughs> sufficiently to be able to identify that it was not a, a projectile. I think wow. you know, that information is very important to be able to introduce that in court, that, right. that not even a projectile was recovered, because even if you can't match it back to a particular gun, the fact that you are claiming to have a projectile fragment is in itself evidence of someone having fired a gun. Mm-hmm. So it's mm-hmm. very, very important to be thorough. Um, I have another case, case ex- example, too. Um, this is actually one of my favorites. It's not okay. a very famous case or a very important one, but it's one where the evidence turns out to be really valuable. Um, we had a, a lady who was at home. Somebody rang the doorbell, and she was slow to to get to the door, and so this individual went around the back of the house and broke in, thinking that nobody was at home, uh-huh. confronted her and put a pillowcase over her head. And uh, the request that came to the lab was um, they had apprehended a suspect some different distance away jumping over a fence. He was wearing gloves, and they wanted the gloves examined for um, fragments of wood that they could match back to the fence. So I looked at the gloves, and one of the things that I noticed about them, there was no little wood fragments, but I mm-hmm. did notice some little yellow fibers adhering to the gloves. And then later on, another piece of evidence came in. It was a pillowcase that had been over the victim's head. And your first assumption might be, well, it's her pillowcase. It's likely to have her DNA on it. It's likely to have her hair on it. We, we know it's her pillowcase. But I got it out of the bag and looked at it anyway. And do you know that pillowcase was covered in little yellow fibers? Hmm. So I call, called up the detective and I said, you know, go back to this house and look for the source of these yellow fibers. And sure enough, the victim had a brand new yellow blanket on her bed that was shedding Mm -hmm. fibers everywhere. So that information placed that suspect, not just jumping over a fence nearby, but it actually placed him in her bedroom. Um, And so, you know, that's the advantage to being thorough. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Looking at at things and not assuming that you already know everything about what you're looking at. That but is a great example. I wanted example. to get back to the other question um, mm-hmm. that you'd asked me earlier, you know, about uh, we, we have to give the defense a fair, fair shot at um, being embarrassed over some of the things that they okay. asked us to do. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and, uh, this particular one was, was also a uh, homicide involving a, a shotgun. And the defendant was claiming the shotgun had gone off accidentally. Um, it was uh, actually multiple shots that had been fired. It was the kind of shotgun that you had to pump in order to extract the the um, shotgun shell and load a an, an fresh round in. Uh-huh. And these shotgun shells were over distributed over some distance. And so I think the the uh, 
import of what we were able to provide to the attorney was that this absolutely could not be accidental because it required not only for the suspect or the shooter to travel some distance, but as he was moving to pump the shotgun to load additional rounds in there to fire them. Mm-hmm. So I think we could pretty safely rule out any type of an accidental discharge on that particular case. Interesting. Interesting. The main, the main thing, though, Franti, I don't want any attorney ever to be embarrassed to ask. Right. You know, you, you, defendants have a right to investigate the case that's being brought against them and to do so without putting their own case in any um, jeopardy. They have a right against self-incrimination. And I don't believe that any attorney should ever be embarrassed to ask a forensic scientist to investigate something or to address a particular question or hypothesis. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, okay, so that brings me to this, and, and, um, and we just have a, uh, probably about three minutes left, but what tips do you have for people that are going to contact you as a, as a consultant, as a forensic expert, of what they should be prepared before they contact you? And the first thing I would say is that you, you need to find an expert with the right expertise. Mm-hmm. You definitely don't want to um, hire somebody that's going to overextend their expertise. Um, you also want one that you know is going to engage with you in terms of helping you address the right questions in the case. Um, I think it's, it's, we've already talked about the dangers of simply receiving an evidence envelope labeled on the outside, right. um, you know, test for blood, when that's not really what the, is going to be the most useful type of work to be done. Um, so I think that's very important. I think um, being open with your expert in terms of making sure that they receive all pertinent information. Um, because while you can't always determine whether something is black or white from the science, mm-hmm. there are shades of gray, and having additional information can help you with that, even with witness statements. I know there's a lot being said about working blind, but I don't believe that that's an advantage because I don't believe you can formulate the right questions if you're working blind. Mm-hmm. You, you can sometimes say it's more like what this witness is saying, but I can rule out what that witness is saying. Right, right. Yes, I've heard that claim too, is about working blind versus uh, being able to read all the relevant uh, police reports, etc. Yeah. Yeah, and I, yeah. I think any um, forensic scientist that is truly um, a a, uh, a good thinker should be able to address a case and answer the question scientifically, document what they have um, uh, discovered and what the reasoning behind it is. What is their opinion based on? In any event, I think open communication is obviously a really big thing, being being able to work um, effectively with an expert witness. Exactly. Okay. Well, we're out of time, so it's a pleasure, pleasure having you on the show today. Thank you so much for taking the time. And uh, once again, a shout out to my sponsors, Jimmy and Rosemary Messes, uh, publishers of PI Magazine. And 
So, folks, tune in again next week when we declassify topics of interest for private investigators and the world. Thank you to Celia. It's PIs Declassified. I'm Francie Kaler. Thanks so much for listening. You've been listening to PIs Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time, here on the Voice America Variety Channel. 